0: Well, good morning again and welcome again. We're very glad that you chose to come here and celebrate Easter with us. My name is Jeff, and I'm the pastor here at the church, and really, you're gonna be glad that you came. We have really a very wonderful day of celebration with a lot of different elements here before us. In fact, as we enter into this time of worship, and, and, and we know, this is the Easter holiday is, is, for me, the greatest holiday of the whole year. We celebrate the greatest event of all time, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what we plan to do for you today is to just kind of take you back to the roots of where this all came from. Because you see, this, this whole Easter story, obviously Jesus raising from the dead is predicated only because that he first had to die. And that whole idea of and the story surrounding his death on the cross took place during a Jewish Old Testament feast called the Feast of the Passover, And and so what we're going to kind of portray for you as we walk through this day's time is just kind of talk about the story of the Passover to give you the understanding of the roots from which we ultimately get to this point where we're talking about Easter. And and really this Passover story, it it goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus in chapter number 12, God makes some very clear instructions to uh, the nation of Israel. At that time, the nation of Israel were slaves to Egypt. And uh, in Egypt. And and God set up these plagues where he was judging Egypt and Pharaoh, and the last of all the plagues was going to be the death of the firstborn. And he instituted this thing that we ultimately know as the Passover because the Jewish families were to take each family a lamb. And and that lamb had to be a very special lamb. It it had to be a male. It it had to be without blemish of the flock. It, It had to be one year old, and it had to be brought before the priest, and it had to be approved that it qualified for all that, and then some days later, when it actually came time for the Passover, the, the Bible says that all the congregation of Israel would kill that lamb in the evening, and, and once that lamb was killed, then the blood would be taken, and each family that brought that lamb would take that blood, and they would apply it to the doorpost, to the two side posts. And to the lintel over the top of the door. And and God says as he was going to bring that last plague of the death of the firstborn through the nation of Egypt. He said, if you do this and you apply that blood of that spotless lamb to your household. When I pass through Egypt and I see the blood. I will pass over you and you can live. And that was really the beginning of something that became a yearly requirement for the nation of Israel to observe throughout their history. In just a second, we're all going to stand and we're going to worship together in song, but there's going to be another special element of artwork going on here at the same time. And I want you to pay attention to that while we're singing and and just allow the Lord to paint His picture in your hearts while we worship Him today. Let's all stand together and we're going to pray. And so in that Old Testament Passover system, the families would bring in the lamb and the priests would inspect that lamb. And they would inspect it according to the law of Moses and and they would make sure that it met all those requirements, that it would be without blemish and that it would be acceptable. But when God was giving his word through Moses and he was setting up that law and he was giving us this this feast, and in all of these feasts and rituals of the Old Testament Jewish system, it pointed to something even greater, because hidden inside the Torah of Moses was yet still another picture. <laughs> you can go ahead and have a seat. You know, in this Old Testament Passover system. This mosaic law, there, there was indeed, <clears throat> excuse me, an elaborate, detailed system of animal sacrifices, and the system of animal sacrifices was instituted by God to allow for the remission of sins. And the interesting thing is, is that these Old Testament sacrifices of animals' blood was never intended to completely take away sin. They were just to put the sin into remission. If you've ever had a disease and a disease goes into remission, the disease is not completely cured. The disease has not gone away. It's just not active for a period of time. And these Old Testament animal sacrifices were set up in such a way to just give remission of sins. In the book of Exodus, in chapter number 34, and verses 6 and 7, it should come up on the screen. Notice this, it says, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, that will, by notice, by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. And so this Old Testament system of sacrifices and animals and feasts and bloodshedding and all of that that was done for sin was done so that they could be forgiven. But the forgiveness would only be temporary. It was never intended, as it says in that verse, to clear the guilty. We need to understand that whether it's us today, whether it was the nation of Israel back in Moses' day, or any human being of any time, of any point in history, one thing is absolutely true, and the fact is, we're all guilty. We're all guilty. Uh, The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. From the very first man and woman ever placed in the Garden of Eden and their sin, it became very clear that there was a need. We go back to our Old Testament system, and this is our theme for today, and God gave this elaborate system of of rituals and sacrifices that, like I said, were for the remission of sin, but he also gave something that we're probably all familiar with, and that was not just a ceremonial law, but he gave what we call a moral law, and that moral law just continues right on through all times. We often refer to it as the Ten Commandments. And so it would have been very clear to those people at that time when they received all this instruction from God, these Ten Commandments were issues of human morality. If it were possible for us, it was God's standard. It's what He required. It was His law concerning morality. And if it were possible for us to keep the Ten Commandments, then we would be okay with God. But the fact of the matter is, I, you, all of us of all time, are incapable of keeping the Ten Commandments. Let me just remind you of a few of them. Among the Ten Commandments, it says, Thou shalt not bear false witness or lie. If we're honest, if, if, if we're not going to lie, we would all admit that we've all told a lie from time to time. And if I were to say, and I'm not going to do this, but if I were to say, you know, uh, raise your hand if you've never lied, typically in a crowd, you always get one wise guy or something, that will say, I never did But that guy would be a liar, right? Because we've all done it. We've all come short. We're all guilty of this one command. Thou shalt not lie. It says in another place, thou shalt not steal. And seriously, consider your own life before the Lord. Has there ever been a time ever in your life when you've taken something that doesn't belong to you? It may be something very insignificant. It may be a small thing. It might have been from a time of your childhood. Maybe while you were at work, you took stuff home that didn't really belong to you, and you didn't have permission to take home. I mean, things happen in our lives. I'm guilty of that. We're all guilty at some point of having taken something without permission that does not belong to us. Thou shalt not steal. That's a moral standard. It says, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. We call that blasphemy. God's name is holy. It represents who he is. He's perfect and pure and spotless and holy. And he doesn't appreciate when we use his name in a foul, vulgar, dirty manner. When, when something bad happens in our life and we whip out the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that would be a curse, that's blasphemy. And if we think about our lives, you might say, along with me, I, I've been guilty of that. I, I've broken that law. There are some other laws that are a little bit more serious, maybe, in our minds. That The Bible says, "...thou shalt not commit adultery." And many of you, I'm sure, would honestly say before the Lord, well, I've never done that. But when Jesus Christ showed up some 1,500 years later, he clarified exactly what he meant by that. And he gets really to the heart of the issue and he says, You've heard that it was said of old that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that if a man look upon a woman with lust in his heart, he hath committed adultery with her already. And so, who among us truly in our heart of hearts could say that never one time in all our lives have we ever looked upon another human being with lust in our hearts? And so, before God's standard, this system of animal sacrifices was for the remission of sins, but by no means to clear the guilty. God would have also made it very clear we are all guilty. Uh, Even in just those four simple laws of the Ten Commandments that God gave us, if we're honest, I think we probably would all admit that we're all lying, stealing, blaspheming adulterers at heart. And as such, we deserve to be punished. You see, a good, just judge... Must punish transgression. There has to be a penalty. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, right, I I get it, but you know, I did that stuff when I was very young. That was a long time ago. And honestly, I don't do that anymore. I, I really, really don't. Well, let me ask you, what would we really expect of a good judge in a court of law today? Let's say somebody was guilty of committing a murder. And that person committed a murder a long time ago, and finally they were apprehended and brought in before the courts, and, and he stood before this just judge, and he said, you know, and the proof was just unrefutable. And the person said, you know, judge, I, I, I am guilty. I, I did kill that person. But I just want you to know that it was only that one time. And, and ever since that time, I, I, haven't, I haven't done it since. And you know what? That was a long time ago. What would you expect of that judge to do? Well, you'd expect him to convict that person because he deserves punishment. What would you expect if you were the family? What if it was one of your family members that was the victim? And you were in the courtroom watching this proceeding and the person who killed your loved one was standing there saying, yes, but, I, but I'm a good person now. I've gotten past that, really. I should just be forgiven. I'm guessing if you're like me, you would probably say, no, I'm sorry. You did that and you must pay. Well, just as we would expect that of a good judge in a court of law today, certainly God Almighty is perfect and holy, and therefore He can't just look away. He must punish sin. We're still guilty before the Lord because we have lied, we have stolen, we have blasphemed, we have lusted, and we have done many other things as well. And as a result, there is a penalty. In the book of Romans, in chapter number 6, in verse 23, it says that the wages of sin is death. And so a wage is simply what we earn for what it is we have done. You have a job, you work your job at the end of your pay period, you receive your wage. You don't have to beg for it. You have earned it. It belongs to you. And what is it that we have done before God? We have sinned. And so what we have earned, our wage, our payment, as a result of what we have done is death. Now, we're all thinking adults here. We understand that there's a cycle of life, that there's a birth, and there's a process of growth and maturity in life, and that that cycle comes to an end at some point, and there is physical death. And I'm here to tell you that based on the authority of God's Word, if man had never sinned, man would never die. The fact that we all die is proof positive that we all sin. But when the Bible talks about death, you've just got to understand that it's a much bigger picture than just simply physical death because we are originally created in the very image of God and the Bible says God is a spirit. And that when we suffer death, we are not just merely physical beings, we're also spiritual beings. And you see, our death cannot just merely be physical. There's a spiritual component to the death as God refers to it. And in the last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation, in chapter number 21, the second to last chapter in that book, and in verse number 8, the Bible says this very clearly. It says, But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. Notice this, which is the second death. And so you look at that list and you're like, wow, that's a rough list. That's a rough crowd. That's not really my crowd. If you look closely at the list, included among some of those very terrible things that probably many of us have never done, and all liars. In fact, at the beginning of the list, it makes it so generic that really the thing God's looking for, and we'll get to that before we're done today, it says, but the fearful and all you have to do to be guilty is be an unbeliever. Be an unbeliever. And so that's what he does. And it's our punishment. We are all guilty. And the Old Testament blood sacrifices were just a picture. It was a foreshadowing. It was an introduction to something that would be much greater. And this Old Testament system, as he set this up, it required a blood sacrifice it's not even just the law of Moses it goes all the way back to the garden of Eden when Adam and Eve see, sinned and they understood that they were naked and God called out to them what did they do they sewed fig leaves for a covering and God said the fig leaves are not good enough and God clothed them with skins of an animal and in order to get a skin from an animal you have to shed its blood Because it says in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 22 that without shedding of blood, there is no remission. And there is a blood sacrifice element that God has always required in order to satisfy the demands of the law, in order to cover sin. We're going to look in the book of Hebrews in chapter number 10 in the first four verses here in just a second. And, and the book of Hebrews is a wonderful book in your New Testament that helps you to understand the Old Testament systems and the legal system and the different chapters deal with different things. But if you were not aware of this, it should be intuitive to you because the book indeed is an epistle written to, as the title says, the hebrews it's written to people who have jewish origin who would have understood the law of moses and this entire sacrificial system and in specifically talking about these sacrifices in hebrews chapter 10 and verse number one it says this for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect for then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Notice, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. And so... These people would bring their lamb and the lamb would be slain and they would take the blood and they would put it on the post and they would put it on the lintel and they would do what they would do and the sin would be in remission for that year. And when that year was up, they had to do it all over again and year after year after year, they would do these sacrifices on purpose. God was reminding them and saying, you are sinners and you need something to cover that. And it was a remembrance year after year. And if it were possible that the blood and bull of goats could take away sin, then all you have to, would have to do is do it one time, and you would be done. You would never have to do it again. But because it is impossible to make the comers thereunto perfect, they had to be repeated, and they had to be repeated, and they had to be repeated. So they were offered yearly, and again, for the remission, not the clearing, not the taking away. The blood of bull and goats cannot take away The sin. And so that's the constant reminder. And this went on for about 1,500 years from the giving of the law until we fast forward to the time of Jesus Christ. And we get to a figure in the Bible that's written about in the very beginning of your gospel accounts, and his name is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is baptizing in the Jordan River. And people are coming to him, and he's preaching, and he's saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's preaching and he, his message is repentance for the remission of sin. And so people are lining up and John is baptizing them. And, and, and just imagine with me because one day John is baptizing and off in the distance, somebody's coming. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe he walks over a hill and, and he's visible there from a distance and John is baptizing. And he sees Jesus and he makes an incredible proclamation in John chapter 1 and verse 29 where he says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And all of those Jews that would have been baptized in water and that, that again, figuring into their, their remission of sin, would have understood the imagery. They would have understood how that lamb was a part of their Passover. They would have understood how that lamb had to be brought and the blood had to be shed and it had to be applied to each house so that when the time came and the plague, God would pass over that house and they would not die, but they could live. And Jesus Christ now declared the Lamb of God that can do what none of the bulls and goats could ever do, taketh away the sin of the world. So they understood all that. It's very different. So the Jews, I can only imagine, if I was in the crowd that day, I can only imagine John is baptizing and we're doing what we've always done. And this declaration is made for this man who, publicly speaking anyway, had been relatively unknown to the crowd in general. And so maybe they were curious, they would have understood the idea, but maybe if they were like me, they would have been, can I say, cautiously skeptical maybe they would have said, could it be? Is it possible that this one is going to fulfill all of these years of Moses and the law that's been given to us, handed down by generation? And so maybe they were curious. Maybe they weren't sure. Jesus, of course, is baptized at that time and then immediately thereafter begins what we understand as his public ministry on earth. And Jesus Christ spends... The next three and a half years, doing what no man could ever do. Because this was a big deal. He would be teaching in their synagogues with an authority that the scribes and the Pharisees had never understood. He would have performed supernatural, miraculous acts that nobody before could ever have possibly done. He walked on water. In the midst of a storm, he would speak a word and all the elements of nature would obey him. He could take a few loaves and fish and through a prayer multiply them to feed multiplied thousands of people. He literally, with a word, would just could heal and did heal all manner of disease. To the point where ultimately, he even was able to take a man who had been dead And in the grave, for four days, the process of decomposition had already begun to set in Lazarus' body. And Jesus called his name and he came to life again out of the grave. This Jesus Christ did all of these things, proving who he was, all the while, never one time in his own life committing sin. He truly was. A special man. And yet, in the midst of all of that, many of the Jews and leaders of those times, they still just refused to believe in him until one very special Sunday. A day when Jesus Christ comes and he enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. And this day would have been on the Jewish calendar the 10th day of the month of Nisan, it would be in the March-April time frame that we're in right now, because the Jewish Passover would always be on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. On the 10th day of that month, he would have entered into Jerusalem To present himself before all the people just like the Israelite families would have come in with their lamb to present it to the priest. So the priest could inspect it and the priest could determine that yes indeed this lamb qualifies to be slain for your family for the Passover. And so on that very day in history some 2,000 years ago Jesus Christ enters into Jerusalem as the Lamb of God. To be put on display in front of all the people, that male, spotless, without blemish, lamb that ultimately can take away the sin of the world. And then just four days later, probably a Thursday, we see Jesus Christ crucified. As it says back in the book of Exodus, that all the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And that's when he was crucified, on that day of the Passover. Fulfilling every type, every picture, every foreshadowing that had come through all of history, that all of these people would have understood, because year after year after year, generation after generation, they would have done this thing and they would have been reminded of their sin and they would have been reminded that it had to be repeated over and over again. And on that 14th day of Nisan of that year, they killed the Lamb in that evening. He shed his blood. On the Passover Back to Hebrews chapter 10, a little further down in the chapter in verse number 11. It says, "And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And we remember back to those bull, the bulls and the goats and the, and the blood that was shed how they could never take away the sin. And if they could, you wouldn't have to repeat it. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, could. And therefore, it only took once. He did it once, and all, that's all it takes is once. And it never needs to be repeated again. Continuing on in verse 13, it says, From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. The thing that the Old Testament law could not do, Jesus Christ fulfilled. How is that possible? How does that happen? Well, again, remind ourselves, once that lamb was selected and approved and slain, the family then had to take the blood and they put it on the side post and they put it on this side post of the the door of their house And, and they put it on the lintel up on the top And when they would do that, then that would be the sign. And God would pass over them so they need not die, but live. Similarly for ourselves, Jesus Christ is that lamb. And the the Israelite families had to apply the blood of the lamb to their homes, to their families. We likewise, Jesus Christ is that lamb. He was presented on the 10th of Nisan. He was slain on the 14th of Nisan in accordance with every single Old Testament prophetic law. But we have to apply it to our lives. Think about the blood pattern on this doorway. One on the left, one on the right, one in the middle, and it's a little bit higher. Jesus Christ, when he was crucified on Calvary that day, the Bible says he was crucified between two others. One on his left And one on his right. And Jesus was in the middle. And he's higher than the other two because he's deity. He's not just a mere man. And so that Passover picture is just fully played out in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you now also can apply His blood to your life personally. You can cause for your sin to be taken away once and for all and never have to worry about the penalty of that again so that there will be no death pronounced on you. And when I'm talking about the death, I'm talking about both. Physical, yes, but the the spiritual, more importantly, that that spiritual death, in other words, hell, the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, is not rightly applied to your life anymore because the blood covers it. And to prove it all, after he was slain, after his blood was shed, they laid him in the grave. Three days later, he rose victorious. Three days later, he came out of the grave. Three days later, he came out according to the prophecies. He was alive again, and he was in a glorified body, and he he had conquered death and hell, and he had proclaimed victory through all the land. He is the risen Savior. I have done it. It is finished, and I am here to prove that you also can have this life. That's what he did. We call that Easter. Easter three days later, when he rose, he proved it. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 8, but God commendeth his love toward us. Commendeth is just an old English word that basically means proved. He proved his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if you've been in church any length of time and Certainly you've heard, Jesus Christ indeed died for the sins of the whole world. But you've got to understand that just because he did that does not mean that the whole world automatically goes to heaven. I mean, we read back in Revelation chapter 21 about a long list of people that'll have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Certainly there is something we must do. Certainly there is some response he requires from us. My question for us all here today is, do you want to have that free gift of eternal life? Do you want to know how you, God? how does God require for me today to apply Jesus' blood to my life so that I don't have to suffer the second death, but that I can live eternally with him. Well, you're probably very familiar with, probably the most familiar verse of all the Bible, John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It introduces that whole idea that we have to have faith. That there's an element of belief that's required. Whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. So this element of belief is something that God is requiring and and, and you need to understand because it's not just saying, well, sure, I believe that. I believe he did that. I don't have any problem with that. But you need to understand as we're going to see in a second, it's not just an intellectual assent to a set of historical facts because they are absolutely accurate historical facts. It's not just agreeing with a set of facts. It's more than that. In the letter of 1 John chapter number 5, The Bible says this in verse 11 and 12, and this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath the life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not the life. And so he makes it very clear, the prize that we're looking for, the the, the brass ring, the thing that we want more than anything is eternal life, of course, and Eternal life is offered to us. This is the record. God has given to us eternal life and this life is, notice, in His Son. So eternal life is somehow wrapped. It's clothed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He says, He who has the Son has the life because the life is in the Son. And he who has not the Son has not the life. Now in my story, I was 21 years old and a college student in Arkansas when I heard this story. We call it the gospel for the very first time. And when the fellow explained to me this idea of you have to have the son to have the life, I was tracking with him. I thought, okay, how do I do that? I mean, I don't... I don't see Jesus anywhere. How, I don't understand, what is it. how do I have him? I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't understand what that means. And of course, God explains to us very carefully exactly what he means. It says in the Gospel of John, chapter number 1 and verse number 12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And so again, we have this element of believing on his name, but It goes a little bit further and it says we need to receive him. And so whether it's Easter or whether it's Christmas or whether it's a birthday or whether it's some special occasion, assume that somebody's going to offer you a gift. You have a friend. They just love you. They just want to do something nice for you and they show up at your house and they offer you a gift and they come up and they say, hey, I bought you a gift. Here you go. And they extend their arm and they say, I would like to offer to you this free gift. I paid for it. It's free to you. Just here. I want you to have it. And this is very elementary, I know, but what do you have to do to make that gift your own? Well, you can't just stand there with his hand extended to you and say, well, thanks, that was real nice, and walk away and say, he offered me that gift. No, you have to literally take it for yourself. You say, thank you. You reach out. You take it for yourself. You receive it personally. If you don't receive it and the other fellow just stands there with his arm sticking out, he looks foolish and you don't own the thing. It's not yours anymore. It's not yours yet. And that's what Jesus is doing. God is saying, look, I I have placed eternal life in the wrapping of my son Jesus Christ and I offer him to you. I offer this gift to you freely. He paid it all. You don't have to pay anything. You don't have to do anything except receive it personally as your very own. And if you'll do that by faith, then it's yours. And this one sacrifice once and for all that fulfills every Old Testament picture from the very beginning of God speaking to man directly in that way is fulfilled in that, and, and you have satisfied the demands of the law. How exactly do I do that? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. It says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So there's two elements. You have to believe that he is the sinless son of God who came to take away the sin of the world as the lamb spotless of all time. You believe that you are indeed guilty. You agree with God that indeed you deserve the wages, which ultimately are death and hell. You agree with all of that, and you find yourself so desperate, you just cry out to him. So you believe those things, and then you confess with your mouth. You say, Lord, please forgive me. I want to receive you personally as my personal Lord and Savior. This is not just I believe in Christianity. It's not just I believe in the historical account. It's not just that I think that this is a good story. I personally make you my very own. Come into my heart. Change my life. Forgive my sins. Be my Lord. Make me new. And by doing that, He'll change you. Verse 13 of that same chapter says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Before I received the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, that was 30 years ago. When somebody would talk about being saved, I didn't grow up in church. I didn't know what that meant. And just very honestly, somebody would say, "Would you want to be saved? I would, I would honestly respond by saying, Saved from what? <laughs> saved from hell saved from the penalty of my sin. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he offers that gift to you today. This is not a story that is only since Jesus Christ forward. He loves us so much. He's so patient that he has endured so much human history of evil and rejection. But he still has allowed us to be here this morning to have the opportunity, just one opportunity is all you need, to truly, once and for all, lay aside your pride. Lay aside whatever is hindering you in your mind and just humbly accept the gift. Humbly receive him as your Lord and Savior. That's what this is all about. From the beginning of time, from the entrance of sin until today, And there is a time limit and we don't know what it is. The Bible talks about a time shortly in the future when he will return again and it will be too late and we have no idea exactly when that is. But he's loved you enough to bring you here today and to give you another chance and to give you the chance to respond. I want us to all bow our heads and we're going to pray together.